Hallelujah. Father, we thank you for the message of your holy scriptures, which we have sung about today. Lord, we thank you that after you redeem us and you welcome us into the family by grace alone, through faith alone, through Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary alone, that you opened up the glorious windows of opportunity for us to be transformed into your same image from glory to glory each day, even as by the Spirit of God. Lord, we seek through the application of your word to be more presentable to you. As your scriptures say in Romans 12, that we are called to be holy sacrifices, living sacrifices presented unto you for your good service. It is our reasonable worship, Lord, to do such a thing. We know that the ultimate sacrifice for our sins has been provided. Thus, when we offer ourselves, Lord Jesus, we do so out of overflowing sense of joy and gratefulness to be included in the purposes that you have to glorify yourself and to be, Lord, useful to your kingdom and to your namesake. I pray as your word is proclaimed today for those who are believers in the hearing of this message, that it would sanctify and purify and make us more presentable as living sacrifices to be useful to the proclamation of your gospel. For those who may be listening who have not bowed their knee to the Lordship of Christ in the first place, who yet remain lost, dead in their transgressions and sins, I pray that the proclamation of your Holy Scripture would ring, ring in their ears with the sound of Lazarus come forth as it were that you would wake the dead through the proclamation of your scripture, that they would repent of their sin, place faith in Jesus Christ, and turn to him as the only way of hope and salvation. We thank you, Lord, that in your word, all of this is possible when your spirit uses even the foolishness of preaching to proclaim the message of truth. I pray that you would help us, Lord, in our hearing this day to think past or to hear past that which easily would stand in the way and obscure the text by our sins and by our ideas and notions, and that you would open up the ears of our understanding to hear the truth as you have ordained it, proclaimed it, and I pray that it would have an effect under the transformation of your people and the calling of the lost to faith in Christ. In all of this, we pray that you would be glorified in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. <clears throat> what a privilege and a gift it is, and what an evidence of God's mercy and grace toward us that He can allow us this time to open up His Scriptures and to consider the absolute truths and the rock, bedrock certainty of our faith. I'd encourage you to turn with me in our passage this morning to Genesis 21. And Lord willing, we'll consider verses 1 through 21 as our primary text today. The title of this morning's sermon is Exclusive Son. Exclusive Son, it's a secondary title that I also considered is Ishmael versus Isaac, or Isaac versus Ishmael. There was conflict in the house of Abraham. You may be familiar a little bit with the story, but that conflict and the circumstances surrounding the birth of Ishmael, the birth of Isaac, and the uh, events that ensued serves to illustrate aspects of the gospel that are picked up on thousands of years later in the writings of Paul. And so we know from that Genesis 21 is significant to the understanding of the apostolic church, the understanding of the gospel proclaimed in the first century. And so Genesis 21 is essential to our understanding as well. So this morning we'll seek to dig deeper how in fact that is the case. The aim of this morning's message, therefore, is to magnify the gospel through the lens of the promised son. How is the gospel magnified through the lens of Isaac, the promised son, who stood in a line of promised sons under the ultimate significant son, as we proclaimed him, Genesis foreshadows Jesus Christ, our Lord. Would you stand out of reverence once again for the reading of God's holy scripture? And let us consider in our ears today God's holy word in Genesis 21, 1 through 21. Here is the infallible word of our Lord, verse 1. The Lord visited Sarah as, as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me, 
Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Verse 8. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, Cast out this slave woman with her son. For the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Verse 15. When the water and the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off about the distance of a bow shot, for she said, Let me not look upon the death of the child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Verse 17, And God heard the voice of the boy, and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy, and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation." Verse 19, Then God opened her eyes, and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy, and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> So I'd like to give you a little extensive quote from a Bible dictionary. This is Smith's Bible Dictionary. This is a great little summary that brings us up to date on the events thus far as they affect Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, the concubine wife, the secondary wife of Abraham, which was offered to him by Sarah against her better judgment as a means whereby to get this promise accomplished because it had been so long and both of them were aged. So Smith writes the following in his dictionary. Hagar, whose name means flight, an Egyptian woman, the handmaid or slave of Sarah, let me add parenthetically, likely procured during Abraham's foray into Egypt, chapter 12, verse 10 through 20. So you recall that, right? Abraham and Sarah, they went into Egypt for fear. Abraham, like he did in the case of Abimelech, passed her off as his sister, got him into all sorts of trouble as a consolation reward because of Pharaoh's mistake. He gave slaves into the household of Abraham and Sarah. Well, I think perhaps Hagar was one of them. So she likely came into the care of Abraham and Sarah at that time. Nevertheless, she was handmade. She was from a distant country, a different culture. She was an Egyptian woman. And as such, uh, she... Um, uh, enters in as a character in this narrative in the following ways. So, Hagar, her name meant flight, an Egyptian woman, the handmaid or slave of Sarah, whom he, she gave or whom Sarah gave as a concubine to Abraham. That was in Genesis 16. When Hagar saw that she had conceived, there's a quote from the scriptures at this point, her mistress was or despised in her eyes. When Hagar conceived and her mistress did not, then her attitude was that Sarah was despised in her eyes. She lost some respect for her mistress. And Sarah, continuing with the quote, with the anger, we may suppose of a free woman rather than a wife, reproached Abraham for the results of her own act. If you recall, Hagar fled, turning her steps toward her native land through the great wilderness traversed by the Egyptian road. By the fountain in the way of Shur, the angel of the Lord found her, charged her to return and submit herself under the hand of her mistress. 
and delivered the remarkable prophesy, prophecy respecting her unborn child. That's in chapter 16, 10 through 12. And then on her return, she gave birth to Ishmael. And Abraham was then 86 years old. When Ishmael was about 16 years old, he was caught by Sarah making sport of her young son Isaac at the festival of his weaning. And Sarah demanded the expulsion of Hagar and her son. She, Hagar, again fled toward Egypt and went in despair at the want of water. An angel again appeared to her, pointing out a fountain close by and renewed the former promises to her. Close quote. In light of this background, Genesis 21 thus documents the conflict attending the birth of the significant son in the Messianic lineage, and these events serve to illustrate gospel realities along the way we find in due course. So consider this heading for our sermon today. The Isaac versus Ishmael conflict serves to illuminate, kind of turns a spotlight on the following. The Isaac versus Ishmael conflict illuminates the following. Number one, the appointed time. Number two, the appointed son. And number three, an appointed well in the wilderness. The appointed time, the appointed son, and an appointed well. These three themes divide our text into roughly three sections, 1 through 7, 8 through 14, and 15 through 21. The Ishmael and Isaac conflict serves to illuminate the appointed time, first of all, verses 1 through 7. Note again in our text, 21.1, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. This, not a moment before and not a moment later, was the appointed time where Sarah would bear the son of promise. Yes, when Abraham was a hundred years old, this was the appointed time. The conception of Ishmael, the alternative plan, the plan B, the backup plan, the covenant according to the flesh, as Paul would later call it, the conception of Ishmael came as a result of doubting God's appointed time. Abraham and Sarah, after all, were growing old. And at the time of Isaac's birth, Abraham was a hundred years, a century old, in fact. Ishmael came as a result, nevertheless, of them doubting God's appointed time. Appointed time is attended by means, or this idea underneath that, you could have this idea of means. When God seeks to accomplish something, He does so through not only bringing the result, namely a son, but also by His means. What uh, Adam, or I'm sorry, Abraham and Sarah tried to do is to get the result by a different means, to do a shortcut. But the Lord is jealous of the whole scope of His Word. He ordains the means and the end. Sarah came up with an idea. I know how we can gain for ourselves a son. We can do it through an alternate means. I can provide my concubine or my maidservant as a concubine, and thereby you can secure an heir uh, for your legacy in your future. This was in violation of God's word, and it was to doubt God's appointed time. When we press forward to seek to speed up God's timing, we do so at the cost of trusting in Him that every last way and means is by His perfect and purposeful plan. So what were God's means? Three words that refer to these. Visitation, His word, and promise. The Lord visited Sarah. This was the means that God would deliver His promise. He Himself would make it known through divine visitation. He would visit with the message of a coming son, and he would visit by the Holy Spirit on the moment of conception, if you will. And this is instructive because God will do this again in history future. The legacy of him accomplishing his purposes through his significant son by calling to life the once dead or barren womb will be a theme of gospel proclamation into the future. God is doing this on purpose. There is a purpose that God will call life from a dead womb. It is proclaiming his glory and purposes uh, looking forward, prefiguring, anticipating another miraculous birth on into the future. And you can guess what that is. But first of all, God's appointed means is by visitation. Secondly, He had said. 
God does everything by means of His Word. He reveals what He will, will, uh, seeks to will and do by means of His Scripture. And thus, this should be the source of knowledge and confidence and wisdom and certainty for us. What did Abraham and Sarah look to for certainty? Well, they started to doubt God's means of visitation and God's means of His proclamation of His Word, so they began to resort to other things, a plan that they themselves could accomplish. In so doing, they denied something, the certainty, the primacy, if you will, the significance and the absolute authority of the Word of God. God works by means of His visitation, by means of His Word. And thirdly, there's promise, of course, a related idea. God said, the Lord, uh, and He had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as He had promised. Visitation, word, and promise. Turn back to chapter 18. Now, there was, of course, there was, of course, no excuse to doubt for Abraham and Sarah, in spite of their age. And one of the reasons why comes to us in this account of visitation, recalling previous messages in Genesis 18, notice verse 1. The Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre. Should that not give you ground and certainty enough that God himself would visit you? The Lord appeared to him, that is to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre. As he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And he saw them and ran from the tent door to meet them. He bowed himself to the earth. And you recall the rest of the event, do you not? They sat down for table, table fellowship, the Lord welcoming Abraham to his table. Next week, I believe, is Communion Sunday. And there is a table, the table of the Lord, that is spread before us. If you are in Christ, then you are welcome to a covenant feast, table fellowship with the Lord. When you sit down, as it were, at table in the communion, at the Lord's table, communion Sunday, you are to remember what Abraham was to recall, that if God is pleased to show his love and friendship and care and fellowship with you such that he invites you to sit down at table with him, then you can have certainty that God will visit you and in his visitation, when he gives his word and promise, it absolutely will come to pass. These are the means that God had issued whereby Sarah and Abraham could know for certain that his appointed time could be trusted. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Genesis 18, 14. 13, the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? And this rhetorical question, verse 14, Is anything too hard for the Lord? And notice what follows. At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. A year ago to the date, God had promised, At the appointed time, I will visit. And how could they be certain? God had given them his word by visitation 12 months ago. Has God visited us? We think about applications of this concept in our time. And when we read the New Testament scriptures, we realize that the ultimate visitation is when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus Christ visited the human experience, fully God and fully man. When he was born of a woman, again, a miraculous birth, when he was ushered into his own creation by his own will, stepping from his place of pre-incarnate glory to take on the burden and call of redemption, he visited us. And what did he promise? Many things. He promised that the power of his blood would wash away our sin. He promised victory over death and the grave and any other tyrant and any other enemy of our soul in his resurrection and ascension. And the last, one of the last things he said is, I will come again. There is an appointed time for the visitation of Jesus Christ in the second coming. How can we be certain? Has he procrastinated? Well, how many of us are tempted to doubt as much? It's, see, I, it, we need him right now. How many books have been written in the last hundred years that threw out a date that I can't imagine Jesus waiting any longer than 1984. This world is in such tattered pieces. Well, there is an appointed time. 
Hal Lindsey didn't know what it was, but the Father certainly does. And at that appointed time, the one who visited us in the incarnation will visit us again and will accomplish his purposes and his holy will. And so if you doubt that history is in God's control, if you think this world is falling apart and the only thing that can save it is Jesus Christ returning on your timetable, I beg you to go back to the scriptures and consider his visitation, his word, and his promise. He will come at the appointed time, not a moment sooner, not a moment later. It is absolutely certain, as certain as his word, which he sealed in his own blood, he will do it. Just as Abraham and Sarah were waiting for the promised son, we can relate to that waiting. We're waiting for the son's return in this application and this example. So we can look to this passage and realize the significance, the light that this conflict and these events shine on the appointed time. Visitation, word, and promise. What was the meaning, you might ask, of God waiting this long? What was the meaning of this appointed time? Was God just stringing along Abraham and Sarah, giving them undue anxiety and stress because he was, uh, I don't know, arbitrary and capricious in his motives? Of course, to assume that would be blasphemy. But that's what unbelief assumes. My timetable is better than the Lord's. But there was meaning in God's appointed time. What was the meaning? Another, put another way, what can we see more clearly from the vantage point of God's waiting till Abraham was a hundred years old before the appointed time of the birth of Isaac, the significant son. Well, first of all, just that, that when the son arrives, it is marked by God's miraculous intervention. Isaac was a significant son, and one of the evidences to that fact is he was born by the conception of the Holy Spirit, not by the plan, the plan B, of mere human agents. Because Isaac was born under these extraordinary circumstances, the testimony of God's purposes to redeem a people by intervening in the messianic line went forward. In other words, just as God called life out of the once dead womb, so he would call life out of the womb of a virgin, Mary one day, and that significant son, you will know because of God's miraculous intervention by the birth of the significant son. The significance of Isaac being born under these circumstances shed a spotlight on God's future, setting apart of a significant son through another miraculous birth. This was part of the meaning of the appointed time. Second, and related to it, and as I've already said a couple of phrases or a couple of things along these lines, resurrection. In Hebrews 11, you could turn there, it's a great companion text. In Hebrews 11, the faith of Abraham is expounded. And, of course, the faith of Abraham is related to the knowledge, the growing knowledge of God that he learned through his experiences. <clears throat> and notice in Hebrews 11, 11, in the experience of Abraham, what is said by way of gospel implication. Hebrews 11, 11, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promise. You see, in Sarah's best moments, looking to the promise, she had faith that she could conceive beyond the age of ordinary childbearing. But then Abraham is included in this testimony as well. Verse 12, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Why, what was the meaning of God waiting in his appointed time till Abraham was a century old? Well, in part to show that he is the Lord of resurrection. A womb once dead, a man as good as dead, with respect to progeny, with, with respect to conceiving a child is, con is concerned, was the perfect stage upon which God could show his power to raise life from the dead to call that which had succumbed to the forces of the fall back to regeneration and fullness of abundant life. Talk about abundant life. When God called the womb to life of Sarah herself, her seed, Isaac, would bear children who would bear children. 
and the spiritual and physical seed combined, we see it pictured in both manner, we see that the legacy ended up over uh, this population of an abundance such as they cannot be numbered, equaling or related to, pictured in the sands of the seashore and the stars of the heavens. This was part of the meaning of God waiting in his appointed time to show that he can produce millions, billions, I don't know how many, uh, seed uh, and, and children, sons and daughters, to the population of his family and to the citizenship of the new heaven and new earth from a dead womb of a hundred-year-old guy and his aged wife. This is the meaning. And then, of course, miraculous birth. This foreshadows the incarnation and regeneration. Now, there are, everyone has in the back of your mind a sinner that's hard for you to imagine repenting and believing. But few of us pause to consider very regularly, perhaps, that we were once that sinner. It is a miracle of miraculous new birth every time God calls a person dead in their transgressions and sins to newness of life. Part of the meaning of God's appointed time waiting until you've got two really old people before they have a child is to show that God can call life from non-life. He can do a resurrecting work in your own heart and even the hardest heart the most wicked sinner, the vile blasphemer against God, if he would but repent and believe, he can be regenerate, called forth from spiritual death unto newness of life. We have in Abraham and Sarah's picture here, not salvation by works. Hey, I have an idea. Why don't we try this through a concubine? Nope. Salvation by grace, sovereign grace, calling life from what was once dead, such that God alone gets all the glory. And, so, and the gospel truth by grace, through faith alone, by the blood of Christ alone, by the sovereign power of God alone, is testified to loud and clear as a result of the appointed time of Isaac's conception and birth. How is this message received? Means, meaning, message received. Well, there's an interesting theme that runs through the story of Isaac. And the promise was received by laughter on a number of occasions. Different kinds of laughter. Isaac's name actually echoes this theme. He laughs. People translate or others indicate that even the Hebrew sounds of Isaac's name approach the sound or they approximate the sound of laughter itself. Why was Isaac named this? Well, it had to do with how the message of the significant son against all odds was received. And this theme of laughter, uh, kind of, you, if you track it throughout, you see a growing faith. What are the kinds of laughter that the son, the promised son, would trigger? Well, first of all, in 1717, Abraham had a skeptical laugh. Abraham and Sarah both laughed as if this is a ridiculous idea, truly absurd. How could God accomplish it? God reproved them and proved them wrong in their skeptical laughing. 1812, Sarah laughed with incredulity in the story we just read a piece of. God himself and two angelic messengers sit down at table fellowship with Abraham, and Sarah finds herself laughing to herself. She thinks she's out of earshot, perhaps she is, Nothing's out of earshot, not even the heart, from God himself. Thus he asks, why did Sarah laugh? I didn't laugh. You didn't hear anything from me. Oh, no, but you did, Sarah. You laughed at the absurd notion that after all these years, that promise that seems like such a long shot to you could actually come to pass. So Abraham laughed and Sarah laughed. But there came a day when laughter of skepticism, laughter of absurdity, Turn to overflowing joy. Back in our text today, <clears throat> we see in verse 6 or verse 5, Abraham was 100 years old when his son, laughter, you could say, was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. God has made laughter for me. God has turned my laughter of doubt and skepticism of fear and small faith 
into overflowing joy when he fulfilled and surpassed my expectations in granting unto me the promise of salvation that would come through the messianic line. And Sarah knows that this overflowing joy that she experiences as her womb comes to life with the birth of her son named Laughter would be a joy that you would share with Sarah if you are a believer in this room, that I would share because I am a believer in the hearing of this message. What is to be, or what are we to gather from this, to glean from this? That the messianic line, the purposes of God, ordaining the means and the end, whereby through the legacy of Shem, through the legacy of Seth, through the legacy of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David, and so forth, would come the Messiah, the ultimate significant son. And when we met him, when we came face to face, when we experienced new birth, the joy of our salvation overflowed in a testimony to Sarah's joy, joining with her and joining with Abraham. The laughter of the one-time cynic now overflows in faith, realizing my sins are washed away. I am brand new. I am free to enter a table fellowship with an almighty God because he has taken them away. Have you ever been so happy that it just overflows? And what is the sound of overflowing joy, if not laughter? What is the sound of overflowing joy, if not laughter? This is the kind of laughter that God makes out of tragedies. This is the kind of joy that God sows in the fields of affliction. When his promises come true at his appointed time, the laughter of doubt and cynicism, skepticism, and even unbelief, when the Lord changes the heart, it turns into a joy that cannot be contained and overflows with Sarah, with Abraham, and all of the covenant faithful, laughing because God, against all odds, has proved himself the resurrecting, glorious Lord of our salvation. The appointed time. Second major point. <clears throat> the Isaac versus Ishmael conflict serves to illuminate not just the appointed time, but secondly, the appointed son. The legacy of Shem continues. Kids, you remember the legacy of Shem? Noah's son, what was it? It's Shem and the... No, Ham and the city builders. Japheth and the coastlands. Shem and the... Significant sons, that's correct. So this is a theme that we've been tracing now through Genesis 21 and the early pages of Scripture. The legacy of the significant son, the appointed son, continues. How will he be received? We just spoke a bit about laughter. And there's yet another kind of laughter that's featured in this next portion. Verse 8, the child grew and was weaned, speaking of Isaac, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham. Who would that be, kids? Who is Hagar's son's name, kids? Ishmael. Ishmael is correct. Oh, trick question. Sarah saw the son of Hagar, that would be Ishmael, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. Why was Ishmael laughing? So she said to Abraham, Cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Would Ishmael receive his brother as the significant son, as the promised line? This is yet another kind of laughter. At this point, his heart was hard. He was, as we had up, you know, surmised probably, depending on the age when Isaac was weaned, he was probably about 16 years old. And there was this solemn feast. This was a significant and reverential moment. At this feast of the weaning of the significant son, no doubt Abraham's intent was that those who would gather would do so to honor the Lord's intentions and recognize with reverence and fear His purposes that would be accomplished through the heir, the significant son of promise, the one who proved to be miraculous and that he was born from parents about a hundred years old. And then all of a sudden Ishmael sees him. Maybe he spills his drink or maybe he falls over, depending on how young he is, or babbles something or drools or spits up and he just starts laughing at the absurdity of it all. Why should this little guy, who's just being weaned right now, have all the attention? Hello, I can shoot a bow. I'm 16 years old. I'm far more capable of leading this family than him. My father has already taught me things that he won't know for years. So perhaps in resentment, perhaps in jealousy, perhaps in mockery, 
perhaps in derision, but certainly the flesh and selfishness, Ishmael laughs in derision at this time. A completely inappropriate response. There is an application of this though that I want to pass along. Note this, the familiarity of the covenant family is a stepping stone for the Spirit's work, but it often is also a stumbling block for the flesh. The familiarity of the family who knows and loves the Lord can be a stumbling block for the flesh. This, in fact, was a principle evident in Jesus' own situation. In John 7, verse 5, it says that Jesus' own brothers doubted who he was. However, this circumstance changed. In 1 Corinthians 15, 5, it said that after they, and among them James, for, for instance, witnessed the resurrection, they became believers. So the familiarity of family, no doubt for a time, caused James, who eventually wrote that, the book of James in Scripture, to be skeptical and to laugh in derision. You guys think this guy is so amazing. Well, I grew up with him, okay? I'm his brother. The familiarity of that covenant family for a while was a stumbling block to James. However, the Lord opened up his heart and he, like Ishmael should have, eventually received his own brother as evident as God's significant son for the salvation of his own soul. Put yourself in James' shoes. That would be a weird position to be in. Nevertheless, a glorious one. Well, similarly, in a, in a typological way, Ishmael was to place faith for his own salvation and God's purposes that would be accomplished through his just weaned baby brother. That was too much for him at this time, and so he scoffed. Children, listen to me. Children, growing up in Christian homes, you have the most precious gift that you can possibly imagine in the testimony of Christianity that your parents believe and teach you. It's familiar to you. It's day in and day out, especially if you're educated at home. At, at home, if your family practices family worship, you hear about it each night. Do not let this familiarity be a stumbling block to you. Remember that what God has gifted you by way of your parents loving you enough to tell you about Jesus is the most awesome gift, the most incredible family experience you could ever have. My prayer for Christian homes and you kids as you listen to your parents, as you will one day trust that the message that your parents hold out to you is the truth whereby you might be saved, that you would repent and place your faith in the same Savior that saved them, the same significant son that they trust in to wash away their sins. Let the familiarity of the covenant family be a stepping stone for spiritual growth and for the knowledge of the gospel not a stumbling block for the flesh. The appointed son. So receiving the son, the son was appointed. Would they receive him? Ishmael had an issue with that. He did not receive the son at this time. Hence, there was going to be a banishment. This banishment was not without purpose. And we find later in the scriptures, it emphasizes covenant distinctions. In other words, with the disinheritance, the disowning of Ishmael, and the continued favored status of Isaac, the testimony of the gospel became clearer. Now, this might be a hard saying for you, and it may even on a superficial level appear contradictory, but there's a reason for what's going on here. In covenant distinctions, that is to say, these events are happening to illustrate the gospel, but notice what's going on, verse 10. So she, Sarah, said to Abraham, cast out the slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. Abraham does not like this idea. We find as much in verse 11. The thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you. For through Isaac shall your offspring be named, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. While you're turning there, uh, so the young people uh, in youth group have been studying difficult passages of Scripture. There's many places in the Bible that the unbeliever, that the unenlightened individual might point to to say, oh, the Bible doesn't make any sense, or this is contradictory, 
or how do you explain this and seek to challenge our faith. Now, there are ultimately no problem passages in the Bible. This is, not, this is a, uh, something that I got from Doug Wilson, not unique to me, and he received it from his own father. He said, Christians should have no problem texts there's simply a problem with you, something along those lines. That isn't, to say, that isn't to say that we don't have passages of Scripture that are difficult to understand, that appear to us not to make sense, or we don't know what they are. It's to say this, that inasmuch as there are areas of Scripture that we don't really understand yet, the problem is not with the Bible, the problem is with our understanding. Now, in this passage, in Genesis 21, you could go back to Genesis 16 and ask yourself, why the difference? In Genesis 16, for instance, uh, there, uh, Hagar runs away. But God meets her out in the wilderness and says, Return to the covenant covering of your mistress, Sarah, and to the covenant covering of Abraham, my chosen one. And so she does. But now Sarah, upset with her maidservant, says, Get her out of here. Banish her from my sight. And the Lord says, go ahead and banish her. So which is it? Should she stay or should she go? <clears throat> the way that famous song um, lays out, right? So the answer comes in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. So kids, who is the son according to the flesh? Ishmael or Isaac? Who is the son according to the flesh? Ishmael or Isaac? Ishmael. Who is the son according to promise? Isaac, that is correct. So right now, before the banishment, in Abraham's home, you have a son according to the flesh, that is the byproduct of works, as it were, of Abraham and Sarah trying to accomplish through their own means what God had promised through his own. And then you have the son according to promise, Isaac. There is mixture in the home. There is confusion. Uh, there is both existing in the same place. Well, God's going to clarify symbolically by sending the one away. Verse 24, Paul goes on. He says, now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery, she is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, for she corresponds to present Jerusalem. In other words, the legacy of Hagar, inasmuch as she was the plan B to accomplish salvation, represents a different covenant. The hope for salvation through means of man, the flesh, or works. But, on the other hand, there is the, the uh, child of the free woman, as it were. For it is written... Jerusalem above is free, verse 26. She is our mother, for it is written, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at one time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. Verse 30. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the woman, cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. This is not an easy passage, but what we do find is that there is purpose in this banishment. And this purpose is to illustrate the gospel. Why these instructions? Why this difficult situation? Why this seemingly unjust scenario? Would these events serve to illustrate the gospel? Perhaps to make it even more clear, there's two ways that God reveals himself to his people and through his people in the Old Testament. There's revelation to individuals, and there's revelation at times through individuals and their life experiences. And in the case of Hagar, we have both. We'll close in a moment with God's revelation to Hagar. He supplies for her life-giving provision in the wilderness. He's revealing himself to Hagar, God himself, the angel of the Lord, to this woman as her savior. Yet God also reveals to us through the life experiences of Hagar as a picture or an allegory that the 
son of the slave woman, that is, there is no salvation by the means of man. Now, this happens time and again in Scripture. It may be difficult to comprehend or understand. It is nevertheless true. In Hosea, you can study later on your own time, chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord commands the prophet, hey, go take a prostitute for your wife. Is this an ordinary or an extraordinary command, kids? Do we learn from Hosea that we should go out and find a prostitute to marry? Or is this something extraordinary? Extraordinary, extraordinary is correct. So what is God doing? Well, God has the prophet marry this woman of ill repute. He has three children, as I recall, and two of them are named weird names. One is No Mercy. Could you imagine us growing up uh, basically named No Mercy? And the other is Not My People. So it's basically uh, reject and wrath. You know, these are the names of Hosea's sons who were born of a prostitute. What was God doing? Well, when God commanded Hosea to, uh, to uh, obey him in this regard, he was revealing something through the life experiences of the prophet. And the picture was that God's people had been unfaithful in covenant with him. Thus, the fruit of their unfaithfulness would be no mercy and rejection, not my people, if they did not repent. Now, this might be difficult for you to process, and this is not something that the Lord will do now in the same way. Nevertheless, at times of his redemptive history, he would speak through the life experiences of some to illustrate the gospel. And as such, I hope the gospel carries that much more weight with you. In, uh, thus, it could be said, or in part it could be said, Hagar suffered this banishment for your sake in some measure so that you could see through her experience the more clearly the terms and conditions of the gospel, that the consequences of seeking salvation by works leads to utter banishment from the covenant community, but the consequences of trusting God's means, His significant Son, and His appointed time leads to favor, salvation, and table fellowship. So God, through the life experiences of His people, was accomplishing this. Abraham's faith was tested along the way. God was sovereignly placing Abraham in positions where decisions must be made on his word of promise while the confirmation was yet withstanding. Abraham is not happy about this arrangement. He is upset because, presumably, he indeed loves Ishmael. He does not share his wife's heart in throwing him out and banishing his mother. Nevertheless, God gives him instructions, and though Abraham is distraught, he obeys the word of God. Can you think of another time where God gives Abraham instructions as to his son, and though Abraham is distraught, he obeys the word of God? You see, where the author, or the Lord, is setting us up, foreshadowing what takes place in the very next chapter, because Abraham will be commanded in the next chapter to sacrifice his beloved one and only son, Isaac. Last point, an appointed well. Appointed time, appointed son, and an appointed well. God does not leave Hagar and Ishmael high and dry. Verse 15, prove as much and following. When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. And there's just something about Hagar's experience that just pulls me in. There is something of a sort of sadness and empathy, kind of a feeling of this relating to this kind of abandonment and this low point and this absolute unqualified state, a woman, a slave, a reject, banished, a concubine, the backup plan, the judged one, the outcast, the Gentile. You add all these up. And as we've said before, you can relate to this situation because you were far worse. You were a sinner, an enemy of God, deserving of his wrath, yet God in the well of living water in Jesus Christ, provided for you a source of eternal life, a wellspring of water in the wilderness of your sin. And we think of it that way. You can relate to Hagar's experience, can you not? Here she is with a canteen made out of like uh, goat leather or something like that, and now it's empty. I wonder how far that canteen got Hagar into the wilderness. You see, even here is a picture of the futility of man's means. 
What is one skin of water for a life of wandering in the wilderness? It's going to run out pretty quick, will it not? This was a makeshift provision. There would be hope by way of wilderness provision that would come, but it would come by way of a constantly replenishing wellspring of living water, not the makeshift provision of a skin full of water for a day or two that was given by Abraham, further symbolizing Hagar's covenant legacy. Just as the maidservant, concubine, was not a sufficient means for delivering a son of promise, so Abraham's skin of water could not sustain Hagar and Ishmael in their wilderness wanderings. Do you see, like this skin of water, as it runs out, it reminds us of the futility of our own provisions. Trying to accomplish God's purposes through our own way is like taking a concubine instead of the promised wife. It's like uh, heading out on a journey in the wilderness with a small canteen of tepid water. Nevertheless, in spite of this, God intervenes. This is the God of seeing who intervenes at this time. Verse 16, She went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, Let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. Now God heard the voice of the boy. And notice God and the angel of God are used interchangeably. We can presume that this is a theophany or a revelation of God in tangible form to the, in the experience of Hagar. This angel of the Lord, God himself, calls to Hagar from heaven and says to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Now this is the revelation to Hagar, right? This is God revealing his way of hope, provision, and wilderness wanderings by his sovereign means. Verse 18, Up! Lift up the boy. Hold him fast with your hand. I will make him into a great nation. Notice verse 19. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. Now, this should sound familiar because as we turn back to Genesis 16, notice what happened then. Genesis 16, 7. The angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, again. This is the first time she ran away. By a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where have you go going? Of course, she says, I'm running from my mistress. He gives her a promise, tells her to return. And in verse 13, she names the Lord. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, quote, you are a God of seeing. As far as I know, I think this is the only time in Scripture of an event uh, quite like this, where a person ascribes to God a name in this way. She calls him the God of seeing. And she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Therefore, the well, that wellspring whereby she had taken refuge, was called Be'er Lehi Roy. What does that mean? Well of the living one who sees me. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. That well where uh, the Lord visited Hagar in her wilderness wanderings was named Well of the Living One Who Sees Me. And now she's out wandering again, and the living one who sees her opens her eyes to a wellspring of water that provides for her provision in the wilderness for her and her 16-year-old-ish son. This is the God of seeing. This is the, well, or the God worthy of naming a well after him, intervening once again. Verse 19, 21, chapter 21. Then God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And then we see a shift, a change in tone, do we not? Well, a uh, 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 thirst, death of thirst, and like suffering unto death. And she's, you know, a bow shot away from her son as he's dying. And then in a sort of skillful narrative way, that reference to bow comes back. And the boy who once stood a bow shot, dying from his mother, became an expert with the bow and conquered the wilderness as it were. He lived in the wilderness of Paran. If you go to Genesis 25, you see the fulfillment to Hagar, the promise made to Hagar and to Abraham 
that Ishmael dies at a ripe old age of 137 and has an extremely prolific legacy. This was the appointed well. In spite of the makeshift provisions, in spite of this hopeless situation, in spite of this second time being banished or removed from the covenant covering of the home, nevertheless, the God of seeing intervenes. The well of the living one who sees me springs forth once again, and the one who sees Hagar gives her hope to survive this ordeal. What is Hagar's legacy? Many things. Hagar's testimony is one of living water for the outcast. Hagar's legacy is one of living water for the outcast. This is the revelation to Hagar. Revelation through Hagar is that cast out the son of the slave woman. Revelation to Hagar is living water for the outcast. We've touched on this before. We won't go there today, but parallel this passage with John chapter 4. Another outcast woman, a Samaritan, a reject, a lowlife, one who in her morality and her choices uh, had, actually, had uh, acquired for herself a reputation of being married over and over again, flagrant in morality and the like. On top of this, she came from a troubled legacy, and she was from a people that were culturally rejected by the Jews. Yet by a well, he who is living water, the wellspring of life in the wilderness of sin, spoke to her, if you drink from me as it were, if you partake in the spiritual provisions available through the significant son, you will have eternal life. Unto new life, unto a satisfaction of your sins and an overflowing abundance such that you will never have to return to the skins of man's uh, containers of water anymore. You see the picture? This legacy in Hagar's experience is wellspring of water, living water for the outcast, springing forth from the wilderness, even the wilderness of sin. And there is reference to this in the fulfillment of Jesus Christ when he meets another woman at the well and gives us all kinds of meaning and insight into the gospel pictures in more shadowy form all the way back to Genesis 21. This was Hagar's testimony. Now think of Hagar's testimony and how it was an indictment of the children of Israel in their own wilderness wanderings. They should have turned to one another and said, remember Hagar, the Egyptian, the outcast, the slave woman, the reject, the one who had a son uh, who, by the flesh and so forth and was thrown out of the covenant. Did God not supply her water in the wilderness of his own wanderings? And how much more his covenant son? You see, when Israel, the, the legacy or the lineage of the covenant son, Isaac himself, was wandering through the wilderness, they began to doubt. They needed to remember Hagar. Hagar's faith put them to shame in this instance. She said, the God of seeing will take care of me. And then the God of seeing opened her eyes. And there for her was provision in her wilderness wanderings. What a glorious hope these passages contain for us. Remember, as we look at some of these more difficult passages of Scripture, we find the message of exclusive Son, Jesus Christ, Christ alone, pictured over and over in all these shades of context in glorious ways. And we remember that even in sin and even in these situations of tragic failure and fallout, even in Isaac and Ishmael conflict, thus we have illuminated, even through these means, God's appointed time and God's appointed son and God's appointed well unto salvation. Remember these things, take them to heart and seek to apply them as we close with this message. Let us wrap up our time in prayer. Lord, we thank you for these moments that we've had to consider your scriptures. We thank you for the message that those who've gone before uh, suffered so much to grant even unto us. Lord, we, I pray that we would respect and honor the forefathers of the faith and those who suffered so for the legacy of truth, but more so that we would honor you, that we would recognize in the genius and the power and the glory of your scriptures is in fact a wellspring of truth, overwhelming and overflowing unto the salvation of our souls, if the Spirit would but awaken our eyes, if the God of seeing would open up our eyes to see the provision of the gospel available in your word. Open up our eyes to see more 
of the wellspring that you have given us in Christ Jesus and open up the, law, uh, the eyes of the lost Hagars out there, the outcast to the wellspring of water that is available only in Jesus Christ unto eternal life. We pray, Lord, no matter how the wilderness feels around us, that you would give us this message of hope for our own encouragement and endurance and for our own testimony to the truth that we might be faithful unto you no matter what you've called us to endure. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.